All right, well, good morning, everyone. Hope you all have a wonderful beginning to this new year. We are looking at the subject matter of faith this morning and uh, messed up on the scripture reading. So that was last week's scripture reading. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 4 now, and I want us to use this as a segue into the sermon, and we're going to finish with this very same passage. Listen to the words that Paul has to the church at Rome regarding this faith. In the middle of the, well, I'll just back up to verse 13. And naturally, he's talking about the life of Abraham and using Abraham as this example. And I asked you last week to go ahead and read, for those of you who are here last week, um, from Genesis 12 through 25, particularly chapters 12 through 22. All right, so with that in mind, verse 13 of Romans 4. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath and for where there is no law, there is no transgression. And therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith or of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken. So shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was able to perform. And therefore, it was counted to him for righteousness. Isn't that amazing kind of faith to have? I mean, Paul is going back through Abraham's life and talking about things like the fact that he was as good as dead from a standpoint of being able to have children. His wife is, her womb is dead, according to what Paul says. And yet, contrary to hope, that is the expectation of that which you don't, right, don't know that it's going to be, that's where the faith comes in, but you're expecting it. Contrary to that expectation, he still expected it. He could do that in light of the fact that he believed in God's promise. That's why Sawyer chose that song, right? Standing on the promises of God. And that's what we're looking at when we're talking about this kind of faith. But the thing is, we're talking about the progressing of faith, right? Progressing in one's faith. And so when, when we look at this progression, it doesn't always start off that way. In fact, often what is very common among us is that we like to compare. That way we can kind of see, well, where's the barometer and how do I stack up with someone else? Like, for instance, did anyone make... 
since, you know, I, I think Steve was mentioned not making New Year's resolutions, but did anyone make a New Year's resolution this year? They're going to read through the Bible or at least part of the Bible. Anyone? Well, raise them high. I want to see. Okay, one, two, three. Okay, you got four, five, six. All right, six people raised their hand. Of the six that raised your hand, are you already on, are you all on target or have you dropped off? Anyone dropped off of the six? One. Okay, one so far. This is extra. They didn't drop off. Okay. <laughs> Who wants to admit that now, right? <laughs> anyway, so I changed my answer. I'm good. <laughs> no, no, but think about it. And, and this is just extra bonus for me, not for you guys. Of those that did, did, was it a whole Bible reading the whole year? Okay, whole Bible reading. Of those that, that did it, have you failed in the past? Saying, I'm going to read, and then where did you fail? At what point? Leviticus, no, easy to understand, Leviticus, easy to understand, anyone else? Numbers, Chronicles, okay, <laughs> I just want, just for my benefit, because in the future, when I deal with these books of the Bible, that's usually where I get Leviticus, uh, Numbers, and Chronicles are the three main ones that I hear. All right, so with that said then, what we often will do is like, we compare each other like, well, you know, I made it all the way through the whole year. And someone's like, well, I didn't do as good. And we, and we feel bad about ourselves. Sometimes it's not about Bible reading. It's about maybe attendance at, at coming to the building. Like, you know, I got an award. I have not missed the last 30 years of worship services. Wednesday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night, flu, doesn't matter. I'm here. Spiritually minded, right? It may be giving. That when that plate is passed around, man, I hit that $250 mark every single week. I get my receipt, or I don't know if they still do that now, but I get that receipt um, to show my donations doing really good. And we compare ourselves. That's what happens in life, right? In fact, the Apostle Paul had something to say about this because as Christians, we ought to know better, right? We know that we ought not to compare ourselves with ourselves, or commending ourselves by ourselves, we know that we stand before God, not before each other, right? We know that. And yet, Paul is mentioning how that's what some Christians do. Well, with that said, the Bible actually uses comparisons. In fact, throughout the Bible, there are a number of times in which one person is compared against other individuals. It's just part of life. I mean, I remember growing up, well, if you could be more like your sister, or you can be more like your brother, or you can be more like whoever it is, and just name someone else, and then the other child feels like this. We do that because we want them to have a, a picture of someone who is an example of good behavior or good work ethic or whatever it is. And so we do that comparison thing. That's Comparing in and of itself is not wrong. It's what we use it for and, and why we use it. And we see it being used in Scripture. We just read Romans 4. Abraham is an example that we can compare ourselves to him. That's why he was used. These things were written for our example, for our learning, for our benefit. And we are told, follow my example, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. So there are times in which comparisons are a very beneficial thing. Sometimes it's not because of the flesh. Well, it, we're going to look at Abraham's life. And he will be someone by which we can 
compare ourselves to. And when I say can, I think for some of us, when we look at Abraham's life and some of the other characters that we see in scripture, some of our historical forefathers of faith, it might feel kind of bad. Like we might feel, wow, I don't have that kind of faith. I don't know how I could compare with these individuals. You know, I don't feel like my life has that kind of meaningfulness that my name would be written in the pages of scripture. The reality is not even Abraham could compare to himself at one point. That's a reality. I want us to look at the life of Abraham and see how his faith was like a roller coaster ride. Now, mind you, we're not given every single day of his life. We're giving major um, points in the history of his life that are pertinent to our salvation. And so we're not giving the day-to-day, right? But even with those historical major points that we can look at, we can see this kind of uh, roller coaster ride in Abraham's life. So let's start off with Genesis 12. And we're going to start off with a great example of the kind of faith he had by leaving his land. In fact, what was read earlier out of Hebrews 11 from uh, Phil showed the kind of great faith it took for Abraham to leave his land, his family, and go to this unknown place called Canaan, the promised land. Genesis 12. Now, the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God promised Abraham, appeared to Abraham, right? The Lord said to Abraham, I mean, doesn't show how he showed up. Was it in a vision, through a dream? He showed up through an angel? We don't know. But it just says the Lord says to Abraham. That's the very beginning of his life that we see. Very first thing is, I'm going to do this for you. I promise you, Abraham or Abram, I'm going to do this for you. That's the very first words in the scriptures about Abraham's life is a promise. And on the heels of this promise, think about the, the circumstances. On the heels of this promise, where I'm going to look at Abraham saying, he is willing to go to an unknown place leaving the security of a place he has grown up in. 75 years. That's all he's ever known is the land, the Ur, the land of Chaldeans. All he's ever known is in the midst of Jehovah talking to him are his household idols that his father would have. Right? His father was an idolater. I would probably guess, if I can be assumptive, that if he's following the footsteps of his father... He was an idolater as well. And God calls him out of this idolatrous family, out of a land that he was comfortable and safe with, right, family members, going to unknown people, an unknown land. All he has are the words of Jehovah saying, do this. Now, from our hindsight, if God says, I'm going to give you this, what do we think? He's going to give it to us. But if God were to really speak to us in a way that he spoke to Abraham then, as he does now, in that he would promise us something in the future, how many of us would doubt God? 
See, it's easy when we can look at someone else's life to go, hey, God promises, just go for it. He's gonna always take care of us. And yet, how many of us have ever doubted things that have gone on in our life with regard to our walk with God, our faith? Well, all we have to do is look at Abraham's life and see there are times in which he had questions. He had doubts creeping into his mind. And the thing is, you know, life is not just in one moment where we hear the promise of God and going, got it. I believe you, God. Let's go full steam ahead. Sometimes there are um, life that takes place over the course of time. And then we refer back to that promise going, wait a second. It's not working out the way I thought it was going to work out. That's what we're seeing in Abraham's life. So Abraham is 75 years old. He goes with amazing faith, trusting in God, right? That's what was read in Hebrews 11 verse 1, of things yet not seen. That's what he was hoping for based upon God's word. So there was faith involved. He believed, he trusted in Jehovah. And so with this promise, he went forward. And that's very much easy for us to understand. The thing about it is, is, In this idea of progressing in his faith are moments where there are valleys. That's just reality of life for everybody, including Abraham. Move on after chapter 13, right? He goes to Canaan. He is, quote-unquote, inheriting that land, even though technically he hasn't. Um, God had told him, now lift up your eyes, look, this this is all yours. And it was given to him 400 years probably after his death. That's what we see. So we move on. Chapter 14, we see the whole thing with, with Lot. Now, years have passed. Abraham is no longer 75. He's 86 years old. We get to chapter 15. After these things, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. Wow. Speaking of reward, God, remember that promise? That's his reaction. Look at verse 2. Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? What is my reward? Seeing that I go childless. 11 years, you'd promise me this. Is the heir of my house, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant? Abram said, Look, you've given me no offspring. You promised me an offspring. You promised that through me, all families of the earth will be blessed. Is the one who was born in my house, this Eliezer, my heir? In our vantage point, we think, you know, because we're just reading from a few verses from chapter 13 and we slide right on into chapter 15. Abraham, be patient. 11 years, mind you. If we'd been praying for 11 years, would we kind of think that maybe God had forgotten his promise? 11 years. For us, 11 days may seem long. I've been praying, praying for 11 days, 11 weeks, 11 months. God says in verse 4, This one shall not be your heir, 
but one will come from your own body. He shall be your heir. And then he brought Abraham outside, verse 5, and said, Look now toward heaven, count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said, so shall your descendants be. It was this extra boost where God says, I want you to go outside, go look. That's how many your descendants are going to be. And with that, I could see Abram actually looking out at the stars, you know, no light pollution like we have today, and just amazed. My descendants, I can't even count the number of stars that I could see. And you're saying those are going to be my descendants. Scripture says upon those words in verse 5, verse 6, he believed in Jehovah or the Lord. And he, that is God, accounted to him, to Abraham, that belief for righteousness. Those are the words that the Apostle Paul used in Romans chapter 4. It was accounted to him, to Abraham, for righteousness by believing that God's promise will come true. And so that belief that was so amazing that caused him to leave the land of Ur, the land of the Chaldeans, into that quote-unquote promised land by which he had then questioned 11 years later is now reaffirmed, reestablished. And so Abraham has this great convicting faith again. And he is willing to believe that God is somehow able to make this happen. All we need is more time. Look at chapter 17. Abraham no longer is 86 years old. He is now 99 years old. That's 24 years after the initial promise. And 13 years after the second time God had told him about this promise. And we pick up. Again, verse 1 of chapter 17, Abram was 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to Abram. And he said, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. I heard this before. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me... Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, because I've made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And he goes on establishing this in, in detail, this promise that he had said 24 years ago, reaffirmed 13 years prior to this day. He goes on and on. And he says, here's what I want you to also do. I want you to take everyone in your household, every male, and you have them circumcised. And if he's born on the eighth day, he'll be circumcised. This is my covenant with you because I'm going to make you a great name, a great nation. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In verse 15, he continues and says, As for your wife, Sarai, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah. I will bless her and also give you a son by her. As Abraham fell on his face earlier, he does so again, verse 17. Abraham fell on his face and laughed, and he said in his heart, 
Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? That's what's going on in his heart. I mean, women, you're told you're 90 years, I mean, you're 90 years old. All of our 90-year-old sisters in Christ, think about this. <laughs> you're going to give birth a year from now. Some of you be saying, I don't want a child, you know. <laughs> she was wanting a child all her life. And she would have her hopes raised up, probably by virtue of the fact that Abram would not keep this news to himself. He would say to his wife, God promised us. And 24 years later, when by virtue of having no hope, Realistically speaking, from a human, human vantage point, there should be no hope to have any children between the two of them. And God is saying, you will have a child through Sarah. He laughs in his heart, questions how this could even happen. And he says in reaffirming manner, verse 18, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Because it's not humanly possible, God. I know you made this promise, and I did have a son through my maidservant, right, or through, right, through my wife's maidservant. Maybe it's through him. And God says, no, verse 19. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard, of, I've heard uh, you speak of him, and I will bless him. I'll make him fruitful, verse 20, and multiply him exceedingly. But, verse 21, my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. So Abraham took Ishmael and all who were brought with his money and everyone, and then he circumcises them because his faith is reassured for the third time. Right? Initially the first time, Reaffirmed the second time, and now the third time. God says, no, no, no. Ishmael's not going to be through the seed by which I will bless you. It's going to be through your other son, Isaac, whom Sarah will bear. So all I'm saying is that when we look at this life, there are times in which when you have situations and circumstances in your life that you're going to have doubt, and you'll need to be reminded. And Scripture has us in moments like this Moments of reminders of why we are Christians. The reality is some of us really don't take stock in the promises of God. And we just go about living our lives thinking, you know, just life goes on and, and somewhat aimlessly. And we know generally when we we're here and we're, we're going to believe that we have this, this life after death. But sometimes we forget on the forefront of our minds. It doesn't project the way we live our lives it just has something in the back of our minds and we just do stuff like come to church services go out live moral lives but when push comes to shove do we remember the promise that god gave to us ourselves the way he had done to abraham and when that push comes to shove how do we respond see we have all these passages that we can read and we can see the kind of faith where it's got this roller coaster ride. I want you to go to Genesis chapter 22 because it seems like 
Abraham passed a threshold at some point in his life, right? And I believe this is what God wants for us. I cannot guarantee that every one of us will have this kind of faith. And I don't know if, if necessarily that means that's a bad thing because I still believe it's by grace that we're going to have this promise established because of the strength of God. And that's where Romans 4 comes into play. But it doesn't take away from the fact that if we were to look at the life of Abraham, we can see this up and down roller coaster, but we see a threshold that he passes that we can have ourselves if we grow in our faith, if we progress in our faith. So chapter 22, verse 1. It says, it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said, Abraham, he says, here I am. He says, now take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, I got to stop right there. That's enough for me to wonder why would God ever ask me that when he promised me that this was the son through whom the promise would come? Why would he do that to me? It's because he was testing his faith. And there are times in which we wonder, God, why? And it may very well be a test of our faith. He says, take your son. And so Abraham rose early in the morning, verse 3, saddled the donkey, took two of his young men with him, as well as Isaac, his son. He split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, can you imagine, three days of traveling. On the third day, he has this conversation with his son. Abraham said to his young men, you stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we'll come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son. He took the fire in the hand. I cannot imagine going through that. Takes a knife and then they go all together to this place. My palms would be sweating. My heart would be racing. Abraham, at this point, has great conviction and faith. I'm going to find out what in. Just to say faith itself doesn't do justice, but I'm, I'm hanging on to my words just yet. But he has this kind of faith of great conviction that he could leave his servants, take his only son that he loved so dearly, and he was 100 years old when he has this son. He's ready to slay him. Isaac spoke to him in verse 7 and said, My father, the fire and the wood, I see them. Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac has questions himself, probably wondering what are we doing without a sacrifice? Abraham said in verse 8, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb. The lamb is going to be there for the burnt offering. Do you know that while God is testing Abraham, 
in a very parallel way, he is testing his own son. Trust me, son. You know, there are times in which we have those moments that we are trying to walk by faith and we're having to tell our family members, we're having to tell our friends, I want you to have this kind of faith. God is going to provide the lamb. Now think about that. God is saying you take your son and offer your son as a sacrifice. And Abram says to his son, no, God is going to provide a lamb. What kind of faith does that? I mean, for some of us, we might think, well, you're just lying to your son, right? God said to take you, Isaac. So actually, Isaac, I'm going to slay you. Can you imagine, Isaac, I don't want any part of this. Take the ropes off. (laughs) No way. In like fashion, Isaac is there, fastened, and ready to be slain. They came to the place in verse 9, which God told them, and Abraham built an altar, placed the wood on, um, in order, bound Isaac his son, laid him on the altar. Can you imagine? Was there any struggle with Isaac? We're not told. But he binds Isaac his son, lays him on the altar upon the wood, and Abraham stretches out his hand, takes the knife to slay his son. That is an amazing kind of faith. This is so incredible. From a human perspective, it is stupidity at its finest. Who would dare slay their own child? If God told us to do this today and we saw each other, how many of us would try and stop each other? It's a good thing Abraham didn't take his servants. It's a good thing there were no other witnesses around. This is an absolutely, I mean, it it boggles my mind how amazing this is. But Abraham had this kind of convicting faith. Why would that be? Twice earlier, in fact, three times, God said, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you it's going to come through you and your wife and you're going to call his name Isaac it is going to be through him that you will have this promise fulfilled and at some point it registered in Abraham's mind to say God said it in fact three times I wavered two times I had wavered but he promised I believe in his promise So much so that if I were to slay my son, God, because he is Jehovah, could raise him from the dead. And after he raises him from the dead, he'll provide the lamb. Because I know this is what God promised. And he will not waver in his promise. Why would I waver in my faith of that promise? That's what you're seeing from chapter 12 through 22. It's an amazing story of the progression of one person's faith. And that is why the scriptures tell us he is the father of us all. The father of those who believe in Jesus Christ, who raised from the dead, he is the father of our kind of faith. 
because he set the precedent for us. That means the things that Phil was talking about with some of our brethren that are struggling with ailments or family members with ailments. What has God promised us? Has he promised us eternal life through our mortality or beyond this mortality? This life is full of disappointment, full of wickedness. It has moments of joy, it has moments of victories and all these wonderful moments and memories, but, but we're not going to kid ourselves. And that's why we're having our study in Ecclesiastes. There's wickedness in the midst of righteous judgment. There's persecution going on to those who are downtrodden. Is this the end all? Not at all. We have been given a promise. Our promise is that when this world comes to an end, we have everlasting life. It is with this mindset of, of God's promise and man looking upon that promise that allows us to pass from these wavering moments to this threshold that says, it may sound crazy, it may even sound crazy to some Christians, but because of the conviction that I have, I'm willing to make these kinds of choices that seem as if it is hope against hope right? When reality says there's no hope, my faith is what provides that hope because God promised it and it will come to pass. Brethren, if that does not move you to get closer to that threshold or to pass that threshold, I don't know what will. You will continue and I will continue to have shallow faith. And we will live Lives that are nowhere near as fulfilling as they can be. Much more challenging to be sure. But much more fulfilling when we can cross that threshold. Now, I said it once, I'll say it one more time. We may never cross that threshold. We may never have this kind of faith. But that's what God would want for us. This is the kind of faith that allows you to go to your death with a smile on your face. If I can put it in a very generic way like this. I mean, no one's ever going to smile with someone you know, facing the reality of death because of the conviction of your faith. But what I'm saying is you can go very convictingly to your death knowing there's something beyond. So that is why in Hebrews 11, we have the illustration of Abraham's faith along with many others, right? In fact, two different locations in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 verses 8 through 10 and 17 through 19, you have him going out of the land of Chaldees and you have him ready to slay his son, the beginning and the end showing that faith that he had. The Hebrew writer doesn't deal with his, his roller coaster ride of a life, just deals with the example of faith that he showed, the conviction that he had. And that means that when we look and reflect upon our walk, do we see the promise that has been given to us that allows us to live this life? Go to 1 Corinthians 15. I want you to look at the text here. This is the, this is the promise that God has made for us as he did for the first century brethren. And let's see what translates in our lives. Okay? So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to begin in verses 1 and 2 and then go toward the latter part of, of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. Does not the song that Sawyer led us 
stand out even more with regard to faith? Here's the gospel. What is the good news about? The good news is about Jesus Christ rising from the dead that we might be in the likeness of his resurrection. That's the gospel. And Abraham's life was about him believing that there is life beyond mortality. That is why he was able to go forward and slay his son, if that's what it needed to be, knowing that God would be able to raise him up again and God would provide. That's why that place is called God Will Provide, this mountain. And so we have this same thing here in chapter 15. Those who question the resurrection, he's saying, don't do that. It's the very foundation of the hope that we have for life beyond this life and death. It is this promise in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Do you have faith to believe? Or was that faith fleeting or futile, meaningless? Our word that we've been dealing with. He goes on dealing with the whole subject of the resurrection. Look at where he finishes off with. I want you to look at verse 47 following. 1 Corinthians verse 47. The first man was of earth, made of dust, Adam. The second man is the Lord from heaven, Jesus. As was man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. This corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You live life with purpose as a Christian. You live life with a promise that beyond this life, when we die, we actually move on to be what God had initially and always and ultimately intended for us. To have true life. This right here, we can have a good life. God wants us. We're seeing that in our, our study in Ecclesiastes. But this is not what God had intended. This is so subpar <laughs> that those with the convicting faith 
make decisions looking past mortality. So when Phil was looking forward to this, I don't know if that's what you had in mind, Phil, but, but that's what scriptures teach us about faith. And our ability, Abraham was not superhuman, just a human with flesh and blood like you and I. We can have the same kind of faith. And when you have that kind of faith, it's no wonder people write books because your world is upside down to their thinking. And we add to the pages of the Bible with our lives if you have that kind of faith. I read Romans 4 earlier. I'm going to reread verse 16. For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And that is why when we read the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verse 54, so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, we can give thanks to God. Because that's what we're expecting. This is in light of the fact that none of us has ever gone beyond the last breath and come back and said, guys, it is every bit like Abraham believed. It is amazing what, what life after death looks like. We don't have that, but we've got the expectation that is the hope that is even contrary to hope, right? Because physically speaking, there's no one has ever given us any evidence that there is life after death except through what we read in the pages. We believe those pages to be true, that Jesus rose from the dead, and that God is true, that he's going to raise us from the dead likewise. That's faith. That's what drives us and moves us with being the kind of people that live upside-down lives in an upside-down world. So, what kind of faith do you have? This is not for 2018. This is for you and your life. Do you have the kind of faith that wavers? I do. <laughs> there are moments that I'm wondering that, you know, Nothing can touch me because I know God's promise is so sure. And then there are moments that I'm shattered. I'm brought to my knees and I have doubts. God doesn't want that for us. He wants us to have the kind of faith that crosses that threshold to be convinced completely so that we make all these decisions knowing God is going to provide. That's your invitation. Your invitation to have that kind of faith. And if you need our prayers, that you can have that kind of faith, or if you need to come into the kingdom of our Lord so that you can be added to the faith and live in the faith because of what has been promised to you, then why don't you do that together? We stand and sing.